we need to talk about utopia. We need to talk about utopia, meaning let's look around. What are other societies doing? Well, you mentioned well-being earlier. Why is it that other countries have such high marks in this area? And we have nothing but growing dissatisfaction and dismay on the whole around the course of American society at the moment. So what are these other places doing better? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Elias Krim. Elias is founder and publisher at Solidarity Hall. Solidarity Hall is a podcast, a publishing project, and a community of people with interests in localism, liberation theology, municipalism, and the solidarity economy. I enjoyed the conversation with Elias, who's a different kind of civic entrepreneur working in the arena of ideas and learning from him about ways to broaden ownership of enterprises and in communities. So my sponsor, then my interview with Elias Krim of Solidarity Hall. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Elias, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I am a new resident of Washington, D.C., but I am originally a Southerner of a certain sort. I was born in East Texas and went to UT Austin. Uh, I'm a boomer, so this is a few years ago. I caught part of the revolution in the 60s. In fact, I went to grad school in UC Berkeley in the early 70s, studying literature and languages, and somehow wound up moving to Chicago around the late 70s, where I sort of stumbled into financial journalism, of all things. This is a guy that has a background in mythology. But I discovered that studying finance and becoming kind of a marketing guy, too, uh, was not all that difficult. So I spent a few years as part of the, I guess you would say, the supply side revolution. So I am publicly confessing some crimes here today. In fact, I work for the Chicago Board of Trade, which is about as deep into the belly of the beast as you can go. Doing marketing things, being a financial writer, learning a little bit about the financial system, which was a good thing. But it was then some years later when I left small business, I was in the magazine field for a while and moved over into nonprofits. I also got interested in alternative economics, you might say. And that put me on a different road 
and it led me to founding a nonprofit called Solidarity Hall, partly named for the Polish labor and social movement back in the 1980s. Since then, I've, I've continued to be kind of an editor, a writer, now a publisher. We do publish a few books, as well as managing a podcast and doing some webinars and having moved pretty thoroughly from supply-side economics, Reaganomics and all that stuff a long time ago, into what we would call today the solidarity economy, which is kind of a global movement. So that's where I am situated today. It's quite a journey, it sounds like. It was, believe me, yes. (laughs) Out of curiosity, Berkeley in the 70s, my parents are products of Cambridge in the very early 60s. And so we're kind of like half a generation apart. Wasn't that a pretty leftist political environment for you back then? Well, yes, I would Especially say- Especially in literature and, and so on? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Sometimes I tell my daughters, you know, the very first graduate school class I had at Berkeley, being newly arrived there in the early 70s, was called off because of tear gas. I was going to a graduate class in Roman history, and the class was called off because of the mining of Haiphong Harbor. <laughs> so the revolution was not quite over yet. At least kind of the resistance was not quite over. It was the beginnings of critical feminism in the academy and structuralism and and some of the other isms were taking hold. There was kind of a rethinking of what Western, Western literature was really about, what that conversation was about. I have to say in a lot of ways, I was not particularly political back then. I was kind of culturally aligned, I guess, whatever that might mean. But I wasn't really thinking too much about politics. I was not really involved in movement stuff so much. I was really just on some kind of a personal quest trying to figure out how could I spend my time in the most enjoyable possible way. Were you headed for a PhD? What what was the, and what caused you to exit that? It was the shock of realizing that graduate school was a very different milieu than my undergraduate career. My undergraduate career was just kind of a wonderful lark with professors who were very supportive and very kind of unstructured and very much kind of a sort of a great books and comparative lit kind of thing. Whereas, as most people know, grad school is a very different kind of program, much more narrowly focused on research and publishing and also in an atmosphere that I just found kind of unbearable. And so I made up a cover story, which was that I was going to drop out and go to law school. And then when I got back to what was one of my favorite cities, Austin, Texas, the night before the LSAT, I stayed up late drinking beer. I kind of blew the LSAT exam and I actually never quite made it to law school. Thank God. I thank God every day for this outcome. <laughs> it's interesting. That's kind of the thing that shapes careers, isn't it? You think you might be headed to be a professor of literature or something, but you realize maybe it's not for you. You try something else, but the night before isn't 
isn't spent right, which probably meant that you weren't too intent on <laughs> right. on prioritizing the LSAT yes, or you wouldn't correct. have done that, right? That is correct. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't self-sabotage as much as probably self-protection. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You allude in your LinkedIn to a couple entrepreneurial things being parts of startups before Solidary Hall. What were you talking about there? I had been working for a business magazine in Chicago after leaving the Board of Trade. This was a trade publication, so it was not real journalism. And it was about the financial industry, specifically the financial futures industries. So this, in other words, this is derivatives. This is that whole conversation about derivatives and all that kinds of, you know, junk bonds and all those kinds of things. So I was an editor at this magazine and finally a little dissatisfied. And I saw a notice in the Chicago Tribune for a new startup magazine. This will definitely date me. The magazine was called Online Access, and it, it was literally the first consumer magazine for people who thought they might want to buy a modem. I was one of those people. <laughs> right, right. It had that weird dial-up noise and all the rest of it. So, so this is pioneer days, no doubt about it. And the only people who had modems were librarians and researchers of a certain kind. And so our mission, we thought, my, my business partner and I, who was a very talented guy, had won a, an award for his business plan and gotten some venture capital. We were going to evangelize, not the internet. It was not quite the internet yet. It was more like CompuServe and even before AOL, all those early big online databases. So this is primitive stuff. Oh, I but was we, on CompuServe, so I yeah, know what see, you're talking about. Right. Yep. <laughs> primitive, <laughs> primitive, primitive. But, you know, it needed to be doing. And so this is a very typical thing in, in small business. On the kind of more entrepreneurial side, we created a product which very much was needed and hit the market at the right moment. We had a, a great kind of early success and then larger players figured it out. So the big magazines, PC Magazine, for example, was around about then. They noticed what we were doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had competitors coming in at about 40,000 feet above us. And we gradually were just obliterated by the competition and their big marketing budgets and all that. But it was a great experience. I mean, starting a small business is a wonderful ride. It's better if it works for a while and half of them, you know, don't. Way more than half, I think. Yeah. Way more than half. But either way, it's a it's a exhilarating or can be an exhilarating experience. And so that's how I found it. It was very educational and really kind of toughens you up in a way. How did it toughen you up? What were the big lessons you think you picked up? Well, I mean, a, a very simple one is that if you have, you know, my, my old business partner used to say, there's no more dangerous tool in the world than a spreadsheet because you, you put in these projections, we're going to make money, we're going to do great, three years out, we're going to all be heroes and all that. And then it turns out this thing is just a whole lot harder than it looked. And my partner being the CEO and the founder would have to go to board meetings. And when he would come back, the investors would announce to him, because we're not making as much money as we had predicted, they're taking more of his equity back. 
And so he would come in just not quite in tears, but just shaking his head, just psychologically bruised all over, you know, and saying, oh, my God, this is just, you know, we had investors who were kind of big guys. They were all guys in Chicago, which is not a sentimental city. How did you find them for a, an endeavor like that? Well, you know, my business partner had won a business school competition at Northwestern. And so he got some visibility from that. And he said he wanted to start a magazine for users of online services. He wanted to kind of do a consumer magazine around that. And that seemed like a, an early stage good idea. So he got people from venture capital and four or five different varieties, big investors. And the problem with that was that we were so small comparatively with the rest of their investments that they really didn't spend much time thinking about us. You know, either we were performing or we weren't. And so there was not a lot of handholding. And so we were free to like overspend, misspend, and blow ourselves up. And it was great. <laughs> oh, my God. Didn't you have another one? Oh, yes. I, well, there's several magazines. They're all magazines. In the early days, somebody said to us, there are three things you should never invest in. And that is Broadway shows, restaurants, and magazines. And so there we were. <laughs> and I did it like three times in a row. And, you know, success sometimes means doing well for a couple of years, and then maybe it doesn't work out. But magazines are, were not even a great business back then. They were more plausible back then maybe than they are today in some ways, given the change in print advertising. So I'm talking about the period where print advertising was beginning to go away. Um, so it was getting tougher. But the truth is, in the magazine business, you just have to have a very large budget to be a player and do all the marketing and buy all the mailing lists and all of that. It's a big proposition. And a lot of people love publishing like they love restaurants or Broadway shows, and they put money in it, not realizing how steep a hill it is. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a valuable background for trying Solidarity <laughs> Hall. <laughs> right. What's the founding story for that? I have a really odd door that I went through, maybe. I came through the door of kind of Catholic leftism. So in Chicago, I ran into some people around Catholic circles who were out of the left, the progressive kind of the Dorothy Day Catholic worker side of the church. And I began reading people like G.K. Chesterton, and then I got to E.F. Schumacher, and I sort of got into this third-way economics because I, I realized that the supply-side economics was not working out. And so I began exploring that. I knew a little bit about the solidarity movement in Poland and kind of that whole interesting story. I didn't know it quite as well as I did eventually. I, I knew it kind of superficially. But I thought, where's the third way conversation? Who is talking about E.F. Schumacher and uh, Wendell Berry and Dorothy Day and these other good people in a kind of a public forum? And there wasn't much of it. So I started up kind of a blog, which is what people did back in the early 2000s, you know, a kind of a national blog, group blog with friends who were interested in these subjects. We were really almost like a reading club, but we just wanted to get these ideas out there. And in kind of a quiet way, that's what we did for a number of years, trying to explore alternative economics 
And that's when I discovered there was a whole world beyond the American conversation around the solidarity economy. And then one other event was kind of critical was back in 2013, almost 10 years ago, when out of the blue, I got an invitation to go speak at World Youth Day. And World Youth Day is one of these things that popes do. They, they go to a city and then they invite all the young people to come hang out. And it's kind of a little celebration and so on. So I get a plane ticket to go to Rio de Janeiro, which first of all was thrilling just on the face of it. But it was kind of like the arrival of Pope Francis. So I'm down there hanging out with millions of people on the beach in Copacabana. I spent a week and I talked to all these non-Americans, most of whom were, you know, more from the progressive left side of thinking. And it had a big impact on me. I then dug deeper into some of the economic influences on Pope Francis. And that took me kind of deeper into this global conversation. And so today, that's really kind of where solidarity is in many ways. We're trying to amplify what is now a global conversation and a global movement. But that's my particular path to finding it. How are you making a living when you have a blog about uh, Catholic social thought and such? Well, you do a little bit of consulting around publishing. Maybe you could try being a book agent, which I did. Being a book agent is you get paid to help people figure out how to publish a book, how to package it, and you resist the impulse to tell them this actually sounds like a terrible book and you probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> so, no. Did you ever find books that you thought were great books that they you thought they should publish? One in particular, and I never got it published, or we never got it published. I helped an FBI agent write a book about some amazing stuff that he did right around 9-11. And I, I thought he did a good job, and I, I thought the book was plausible, and we wrote a sample chapter or two, but... We couldn't quite get it done. So sometimes that happens. So how did Solidarity Hall evolve over time or how did you grow it into the various pieces that it it now has? Yeah, I guess partly just an awareness of who else is out there. You, you know, a lot of the work, progressive work and so on and left work is a process of discovering you've got allies. There are other people doing this work. There's a whole bunch of them and they're all over the place. What you probably need to be doing at this point is figuring out ways to connect with them and talk about collaborating and building up infrastructure. It's not going to work if we are forever a thousand, ten thousands of scattered little organizations. We're not doing party politics. We don't put any faith in that, really. So something else has to emerge And in some ways, I do see the solidarity economy as a form of politics. It's politics by other means, but sort of like planting the seeds, the groundwork. And that is the stuff that has to happen before you get to the voting booth. If that's not happening, the voting booth is too late. What is the solidarity economy? Yeah, it's an international movement that has several features. One of them is it tends to be very grassroots. It is the opposite of neoliberalism. 
It is not about large financial entities. It's about the opposite of that. In many cases, it's about the informal economy in the global south, which is a gigantic endeavor, both in terms of cash and in terms of just kind of mutuality. It is also mostly smaller scale, although not altogether, but mostly smaller scale enterprises. It tends to be the real economy rather than the financial economy. It tends to be more conventional kinds of businesses, manufacturing and and human services. It's not necessarily very high tech. And I would say it also stresses racial and social equity. So widespread ownership rather than conventional styles of corporate ownership. And so in various flavors and varieties, that's most of the rural economy today in many ways, but it's not very well understood, not very well perceived in this country. This must be sort of a softball question for you, but what is preferable to then a neoliberal view of the economy. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think about that as I'm getting to know my new city. I've been in Washington, D.C. for about five months. And I see that the neoliberal system has been on this 30-year career of extracting value from real estate, from retail, from the workplace, in almost every dimension of everybody's lives, there are increasing inequities, frustrations, lack of agency, loss of capacity, certainly loss of ownership. Everywhere you look, we're settling for less and less and less. So younger listeners who are in the job market don't will not find that any kind of newsflash. But neoliberalism is a scheme for extracting value from, you might say, the ordinary economy, whether it's housing or manufacturing or services or whatever, in increasing ways to make money for a smaller number of people and to make the lives of ordinary kind of middle class people more and more precarious. I'm confident that the ills of the big systems are are many, but it's also the case that like, if you look at a lot of indices of well-being, that things have moved tremendously in the right direction over the last 50 years around the world, particularly that the, that the, that poverty has been ameliorated to giant degrees and standards of living have gone way up and infant mortality. There is this kind of side effect of the capitalist world that is positive, right? And it doesn't sound like you're opposed to the good aspects of what's going on, but how do you fit in with what, you know, for sure is an economy that operates at lots of levels, including the financial, including big entities that do some good things and a lot of bad things. I mean, we don't really want to probably go back to agrarian subsistence farming. No, 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 right. Yeah, no, that's that's not a possibility. You know, and that the the points you make are often raised when you hear a critique of late stage capitalism as some 
people call it and so on. And a couple of things come to mind. One of them is, I think we need to resist the fond idea that the free market is what pulled all these people out of extreme poverty into relative poverty, you might say. In other words, this is state capitalism that happened in China. It was nothing like what the think tanks and the Republican Party are trying to celebrate as a free market. It was engineered. It was social engineering of the kind that normally conservative-minded people are very shy on. There's that. Number two, I think we could say that that wealth, that enormous rise in the standard of livings and all that, were obviously not very evenly distributed. And in some cases, many people were left behind. So that while there are enormous benefits, well, let's just take healthcare, tremendous advances in healthcare. So the question then would arise, and who has access to those benefits today? Then we suddenly realize, well, the systems were great at creating these innovations and this progress. The system is not designed to distribute it. So we, by one measure, yes, we, we do have enormously more advanced conditions in certain ways. But depending on where you live, depending literally on your zip code, you may not have participated in much of that at all. And if you live in the global south, in fact, that same advent of capitalist reform may also have affected your standard of living, and you may be in worse shape than you were before, again, depending on where you are. So who are the sorts of people that you publish, talk to on your podcast, um, and associate with? You're building a community there, as I understand it. Yeah. I, I would say these are people that are doing economic organizing. And it's different from political organizing. If you're a political organizer, what is the economic model that you should end up with? I don't think there's an obvious answer. For many people, there's no obvious answer to this, although we may be getting closer to one. And we're finding it in other societies. So I like to talk to people, for example, that are involved in the worker co-op movement. So if there is a piece of the solidarity economy that many people might recognize right away, worker-owned businesses would be an example of it because they are something very different. They're not just a different form of corporate structure. They are a different culture. What they are is small experiments in democracy at work. And the words democracy and work don't go together in this country or in many places. So the idea that you could work at a business where you don't have a boss and you and your colleagues just decide what is best for the business, best for you, what the policies are and all that is just for many people kind of a staggering idea. But that's, that's what worker co-ops are about. I've talked to a number of people who are engaged in worker co-ops, particularly in the political space that I follow pretty closely. There does seem to be something very appealing about that kind of connection to the enterprise that you work with and work for. It makes a lot of sense. Are there, when you think about successful worker co-ops in the United States, what do you have in mind as 
ones that are doing a good job of that. Well, there are quite a number of them. When you recite co-op numbers, it's kind of a compared to what thing. Many people belong to mutualist organizations, credit unions and that kind of thing. Lots of people belong to the local food co-op. It's a member organization rather than a worker kind of membership. But there are hundreds, probably 600, 700 worker-owned businesses in the pure sense today. And they are typically, as I was saying, smaller kinds of enterprises. For example, a taxi fleet, food production companies, bakeries, but also software design groups, marketing agencies. Theoretically, even a law firm could be a co-op in the way it's managed. And they have to do a very tricky thing. They have to survive in the marketplace. So they can't really be a bunch of dreamy people of the kind that hang out at the food co-op and want a perfect world. You got to compete. You got to do something that's going to make money. But you then, if you truly are idealistic about being a co-op, you want to have your members collaborate, cooperate, not only internally in their own enterprise, but with other co-ops. So co-ops do have a movement dimension. And if you look at the big success story that always comes up in these conversations, Mondragon in Spain, Mondragon is a $12 billion, essentially a network of co-ops. This proves that co-ops can go to a very big scale. But there's also a system in Mondragon, whereby if one of their businesses begins to go bad and they have to shut it down, which they have occasionally done, they will take all of those employees and help them move to another co-op. The record of Mondragon in terms of employment, continuous employment, no layoffs, is staggering. They've been around since the early 50s, and it's very, very rare that anyone who started up there as a worker owner has ever had to leave unless they just wanted to do so. One of the things I paid a little bit of attention is the ESOPs, where owners sell the business to their employees over time, usually. Do you count that in that same genre? Yes, a little bit, because ESOPs are kind of a spectrum. They are a step in this direction. They're a good step, and there's a lot of them. There's like in the thousands, tens of thousands of ESOPs in this country. But as I say, there's a range. You, you can have a relatively small amount of employee ownership involved in the ESOP, or you can go to pretty close to 100% employee ownership. So it's kind of all in how you manage it. And then there's a second question, and then as to what degree this is important from a co-ops perspective and, and a justice perspective, to what degree is the ESOP governable? by the employees. Mostly it's not. Mostly it is a fund set aside that's got its own board, its own mechanism. And it's not the case that employees have a lot of say in the way the ESOP is managed. But there are exceptions to that. So I would say it's a very good kind of step in the direction of the solidarity economy, but it has certain constraints. In the tech world, it's common to invest employees in the company with stock options or stock or other related ownership. And sometimes in the governance, less frequently, 
there is a spectrum, I guess, in how people are setting things up. Right. I mean, the, the business world in general has certainly changed in that it knows it needs to talk this talk. It, it needs to kind of impress on the new employee how equitable, how fair, how aware the company is. And so I talk to my daughters about this and their jobs, and I say, okay, it sounds like working place conditions are really great. And then I say, what are your odds of owning any of this? Can you buy any stock? Are they going to give you anything along Profit this line? sharing. Profit sharing. Do you have any say in the management? You know, how's it operating? You got to be very aware that it's, there's a kind of a fad around this, but it's not necessarily always realized in, in real stuff. How did you think about this kind of principle when you were starting Solidarity Hall, which I understand is a nonprofit, but you could have made it a for-profit. Did you create it as a nonprofit because you were going to raise charitable money to help you? Did you think about investing people who worked alongside with you in the project? How do you deal with that in your own enterprise? Yeah, it was a pretty simple analysis. I knew enough about book publishing that I would have to be a madman to think that Solidarity Hall would make any money that way, just in terms of a commercial enterprise. So that never crossed my mind. And therefore, support as a nonprofit, for many organizations, book sales do not pay very many bills. Book sales are a kind of development tool. But the truth is, you have to go back to donors, foundations, and so on to support the enterprise. That kind of incremental revenue won't do it. It's just not enough. So I knew Solidarity Hall had to be a nonprofit. It's true that since we started up and we're a tiny little thing, nonprofits are moving toward a kind of cooperative model. And there's now a discussion. Um, I'm not deeply into it exactly, but I am aware that there are more nonprofit organizations that have found a way, even as a nonprofit, to structure cooperatively, which is interesting. So it's kind of a hybrid model. Where have you found funding support? Um, <laughs> well, let's see. I'll, I'll start with my back pocket, and then I'll go to- You mean self-funding? Correct. Yes. Correct. We have sold a few books. We have a small you know, line of books. We have done fundraising, kind of crowd fundraising, which has helped a little bit. And we've had a couple of sizable donors- Although in our case, I would say it's still relatively small dollars. You know, Solidarity Hall never in any year of our decade-long existence has exceeded even $100,000 in revenue. So we're typical. We're typical in the nonprofit world. Almost, I don't know what the numbers are, maybe 90% of the nonprofit world is enterprises that have a mission. They have a couple of people working on the mission, and they never clear maybe $100,000 in annual revenue. What would you like it to turn into in terms huh. of size? And yeah. You know what? I, I think I almost have an answer. It's taken a while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a decade is about is, a good amount of time. Yeah, I guess so. That, yeah. By now you'd think I'd have this figured out. I, I think it needs to be a platform to talk about really new visions of the world. We need to talk about utopia. We need to talk about utopia, meaning let's look around. What are other societies doing? You mentioned well-being earlier. Why is it that other countries have 
such high marks in this area. And we have nothing but growing dissatisfaction and dismay on the whole around the course of American society at the moment. So what are these other places doing better? I'm a bit of a materialist about this. I think the material conditions are very important. So first, for example, we're talking about co-ops. In Italy, at this point, co-ops are in the constitution. They're provided for in the legislation and in other ways they are enabled in a dramatic way, much more so than they are in this country. This is also true in Quebec. And this is also true in other countries in South America. So what I'd love to see is Solidarity Hall help promote and foster and catalyze that conversation, which is happening to the point where a state like Colorado, some people call it the Delaware of co-op formation. So if you want to be a co-op, and you want to get organized, you do it in Colorado. That's my home state. No kidding. Okay, well, the governor there has been very pro-co-op. They're very much about small biz in Colorado, and a piece of that is employee ownership. So they have a wonderful program, and now there are more and more states. There's got to be, I want to say, maybe six or eight by now that have state-run centers for employee ownership. So we need more of that. We need that to keep happening because that's that's what's going to rescue, if anything will, the small businesses that are operating more and more in a precarious condition. So you go to your main street and look up and down, and we all know that mom and pop retail, particularly after COVID, has just been pounded. In a way, the stuff I'm talking about is a way of offering resilience to these small enterprises that they really have not had. And so I'd love for Solidarity Hall to be a contributor to strengthening that kind of work. The era that you were talking about earlier with magazines where it was a big capital expenditure and you had to advertise it and you had to print something on paper and have it arrive at someone's doorstep, it's very different now. And so you are a publisher now in an era where people are monetizing their uh, their lists by small subscription amounts. They are building audiences. Some people who who are really well read get up in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of readers, and they become kind of going concerns that even can hire and become prominent and spread their ideas, a single person's ideas or a group of people's ideas. So you're operating in this very different kind of economic and technological environment. You know, the things I see you doing, your stuff is up on the web. You have a podcast. This is, can be, this can reach more people, but I don't think success is for, for an organization like you. It's not about like how much money did you raise or what your budget is. It's about who is, reading and being influenced or listening and being influenced to what you're saying probably, right? And how is that community growing? In terms of that, how's it going and what are you doing to extend it? That is exactly right. We are in some ways more about influencing a relatively small group of people who get what we're talking about. And the new people who don't quite get it, but are curious about it. 
and what what I'm sensing is exactly what I was, you know, prescribing for everybody earlier. We are discovering who else is out there. And this is really important, I think, because in the kind of work we do, this kind of movement-related or progressive work, I keep repeating this, we need to find each other and combine forces and build things. I'll give you an example of this. There was a wonderful book that came out about two years ago by a woman named Sarah Horowitz. Sarah Horowitz was the founder of the Freelancers Union in New York. She's a very skilled, very capable woman who comes out of a Jewish labor family going back several generations. But she wrote a book called Mutualism. And mutualism is kind of an umbrella idea. And she's saying, we need to create the kinds of on-the-ground, independent, self-funded projects and organizations and enterprises so that if we get good enough at our work, what can happen is what happened in the early 1930s. And that is a national administration said, we should create a new deal. And then they thought, what would it look like? And then they looked down on the ground. This is pretty much the way the history seems to have worked. And they said, we should do something like what they're doing in New York. We should do something like what they're doing in California. We should do something like they're doing in Alabama, except we're going to do it times 10,000 or 100,000. And so basically, Sarah's pitch is that's where the New Deal came from. It was not really a top-down kind of thing. It was flawed. There's no question about that. But she's saying, if you want to really move the world, build something, keep control of it, make sure it's funded, think for the long term, make sure it's mutualistic, and then our moment, we hope, will come when we get so good at this and it works so well that governmental entities and policy people say, dang, we need a lot more of that. So that's what I'd love to see happen. Are you familiar with a think tank called New Consensus? No, I don't think I am. Zach Exley, who was a Bernie organizer. I've been reviewing it because I'm interviewing him later today. But he and his sort of immediate collaborators have been involved in sort of the conception of the Green New Deal, and which of a surprising amount of which found its way into legislation That's passed true. through yes. uh, mm -hmm. the Biden administration and the Congress. That seems like a really good example of kind of what you're talking yeah, about. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and because of the urgency of the climate thing, they have made some great progress. When you deal with economics, I think people have a terrible fatalism about this. We've been educated to believe, this was certainly true when I, in my younger career, economics, banking, finance, these are not for ordinary people. You really should not be touching this. You need to leave it alone. It's in the hands of experts. It's either beyond your mental capacity or it's just beyond your political capacity. But either way, the system is just the system. And there's nothing you can do to change it, alter it, it's the best of all possible systems, we're told every day. It's easier to imagine a lot of things before you reimagine capitalism, even before you reimagine your own work and your own workplace. So 
so there's a, a lack of urgency in a way in, in the realization of what work has become today, even though all of us are affected by it. But there's no movement. There's no kind of obvious entry point in, in repairing this situation other than small-scale solidarity economy projects, it would seem. There is some legislation that's making this easier. But on the whole, this idea of well-being and an economy where people experience well-being is not very well understood yet and not very actionable. One thing that's perplexing me a little bit, and maybe it's just because things like Solidarity Hall take on so much of their founder and your interests are very <laughs> intellectual and very, yeah. Yeah. You know, but if you feel a sense of urgency around this and why are you preaching to or collaborating with such a small subset of other kind of ideas focused people rather than reaching out and trying to grow that more vigorously and persuade people of this and go to where people are, as they seem to say now in the movement, and bring them into these thought processes and and have some kind of output of what you're doing that is accessible to those people who weren't at Berkeley studying intellectuals and so on. Yeah, yeah. Nathaniel, funny you would mention this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought about it. Academic types, intellectual types, bookish types. We think about this all the time. Where is the practice? You know, how do you hit the ground with this? So in the last year or two, I have gotten drawn into local grassroots work, which has been great. Not necessarily waving the banner of Solidarity Hall, more about just my own experience and interest and trying to figure out what's working. Community revitalization is a huge subject. And in my former city of Chicago, there is now a mayoral administration and other funders that have agreed that we need a solidarity economy approach. And the mayor has set aside about 15 million bucks to help foster that. There was already co-op work going on in Chicago. But for example, the neighborhood of Lawndale, which is a, a rough neighborhood in Chicago, long history, very extracted from, but they are now for very little money, they're buying vacant lots in their own neighborhood, two or 3,000 are available in Lawndale. And they're going to be building affordable housing over the next several years, a thousand houses. And they've gotten philanthropy together. And they're also going to be creating a trade school where local people can learn how to build houses and be organized as co-ops. So they're putting together a much more holistic on the ground, neighborhood, grassroots approach. And so I've gotten drawn in just a little bit in helping them kind of formulate some of that's, their messaging. That sounds really interesting and, and hopefully will work out really well. It, it seems like it could. Does it draw political opposition from developers or is it just something that doesn't really hit huh. their radar at this point? Well, that, you know, that's a very interesting question because you might think, well, geez, it's Lawndale, you know, who is trying to develop in Lawndale? Well, I'm sure we would be surprised who's sniffing around. So here's the thing. This is something that's kind of been a revelation to me recently. This game that we're talking about, which is called gentrification, is a game of who gets there first. It's pretty much 
as simple as that. And the reason we progressive folks have been losing regularly, predictably in this battle is the obvious thing that we're not partnered up with large financial entities, real estate companies and all of that. But the thing that they have that we don't have is millions, even billions of dollars of ready cash to go jump on available land and box it up. So what's happening in Lawndale is that they put together some money from a variety of sources, and they're taking the view, if we can just get hold of the property and put it in a trust, get it out of the market, then we can do whatever we want. We're free agents. We can do whatever we want with this and develop it any way we want. But if we don't have that community control, key phrase, community control, it's not going to happen. We're going to end up even worse off. And we will watch as our neighborhood becomes something radically different. So that's one of the ways that you're sort of out there in the real world. Yeah, hanging out with people that are trying to develop community control. And it isn't only Chicago, of course. The largest black-led commercial real estate project in American history just happened in Los Angeles. And so that is called Downtown Crenshaw. Crenshaw Mall is in the middle of LA. It's about 40 acres. That neighborhood and those neighborhood organizations put together tens of millions of dollars to make a bid to own that mall, which is about to be sold to a Swiss bank and Jared Kushner, of all people. And so what happened is that they, they lost the bid, but now the thing is in court, but it created an organization in Crenshaw that's quite powerful and it's going to do some great work. And so I've been a little bit involved in them and there are groups and projects like this that are beginning to meet and partner up. And they're doing this form of economic organizing, as I call it. Some people also call it neighborhood economics, which is a good term. So I'm definitely getting sucked into a kind of an activism that I had not really, truly, I did not know was going on at earlier points. Is Pete Davis the co-host of your podcast? Yes, he is. Uh, I had him on my podcast not too long ago. Very interesting guy. How did you meet him? He he came across Solidarity Hall somehow, just browsing around, looked it over, and out of the blue, sent me an email saying, I love what you're doing. You really need a podcast. And I said, dang, you're right. And you're the guy. Let's partner up. So he and I started talking. We've had a great conversation now for about something like four years running, and he's been just a delight. Marvelous guy, as I'm sure you noticed. Oh, yeah, I thought so. What's an ideal guest for you for your show? An ideal guest is a quirky, interesting person doing something that people haven't thought about very much. Could be more from a cultural angle, not necessarily a political angle or an economic angle. We have a very broad lens, which probably isn't good marketing advice. We're interested in people that are explorers, you know, utopians of a certain sort, although they tend to vaguely come back to ideas around solidarity and mutualism and those kinds of things as a rule. And it's called Dorothy's Place? Dorothy's Place is the name of our podcast. It is named for the old uh, radical activist Dorothy Day. And kind of plays on the idea. She and her colleagues 
every Friday night would have a conversation around their shared kitchen table. And it was called clarification of thought. And what she really was doing was talking about radical economics and other things. And so kind of invoking her spirit, kind of the grassroots angle as well. We call our podcast Dorothy's Place. If someone was interested in your podcast and they wanted to start with a particular episode to get the flavor, which one would you recommend? Oh, man. There are a couple of episodes where Pete and I are just talking. Maybe that's the very worst place to start. But on the other hand, it would give you an idea of what we think about. Well, you have Um, one where you interviewed him about his book. That's perfect. That'd be a perfect place to start. So well, then, I, then I did a good job. Yep, that's <laughs> picking that myself. Yep. Is is there a question I should have asked you that I haven't? Uh, no. This has all been a pleasure. Um, your questions were good because they helped me think out loud a little bit as well. There is something new kind of emerging with Solidarity Hall. We are not really doing what we used to do, and I am still kind of figuring out what it is we need to be doing. I think what we need to be doing is publishing and promoting what sounds like a kind of a wonky subject, but it's infrastructure. I want the progressive world to have a better grip on the idea that we are building institutions now. We're building capacity because we really don't have very much of that. We have lots of think tanks and nonprofits, but I'm talking about real financial plumbing. I think that's something where we have an overlap in interests. And so uh, keep me informed about what you find and what you're doing. Great, Nathaniel. Appreciate your time today. Anything else you want to say? No, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I'll look forward to chatting some more. That was Elias Krim. He is at solidarityhall.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.